Hello, and welcome back to MedLit Review. I'm Deepa. And I'm Brian. Today, we'll be looking at an article in Nature titled, Correction of a Pathogenic Gene Mutation in Human Embryos. So this essentially looks at the correction of germline mutations using a tool called CRISPR. Yeah, so I'm going to quickly read the abstract. The abstract reads, genome editing has potential for the targeted correction of germline mutations. Here we describe the correction of the heterozygous MYBP3 mutation in human pre-implantation embryos with precise CRISPR-Cas9-based targeting accuracy and high homology-directed repair efficiency by activating an endogenous germline-specific DNA repair response. Inducing double-stranded breaks at the mutant paternal allele were predominantly repaired using the homologous wild-type maternal gene instead of the synthetic DNA templates. By modulating the cell cycle stage at which the double-stranded break was induced, we were able to avoid uh, mosaicism in cleaving embryos and achieved a high yield in homogeneous embryos carrying the wild type without evidence of target mutations. The efficiency, accuracy, and safety of the approach presents um, the potential to be used in the correction of heritable mutations in human embryos by complementing peri-implantation genetic diagnoses. However, much remains to be considered before clinical applications, including the reproducibility of the technique with other heterogeneous mutations. All right, so before we get into the paper, let's talk a little bit about what CRISPR is. Yeah, so CRISPR, uh, I love CRISPR. I'm such a geek <laughs> about it. It's so cool. So um, basically what it is, it's a protein that they found in these um, microbial organisms because they were, like, fighting with each other because mm-hmm. they have these, like, um, I don't know, warfare mechanisms. And so what it does is it takes this protein and it takes the um, this guide RNA that fits inside of it and then it... Target, that guide RNA fits around the DNA that it's supposed to cut, and then the uh, enzyme cuts it. So essentially what the microbes would do is when they wanted to kill another cell, they would inject a plasmid into them that would create some uh, harmful gene and kill it. But to protect themselves, they would create a specific CRISPR protein that would cut that plasmid and make it useless. Mm-hmm. But like now scientists have used that made their own guide RNAs and were able to like cut DNA specifically where we want instead of the random ones that the uh, microbes would use. Um, and now we're getting into like gene editing and futuristic stuff. Very mm-hmm. George Orwellian. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> CRISPR's making a comeback. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, cause that's one of the reasons that we were so interested in this paper specifically is because there's a new CRISPR uh, protein that they found that's even more specific. Right. And though, like, it's really hard to talk about yet because it's so new. Like, mm-hmm. it came out, like, a month ago or something like that. So there's been only, like, one or two papers out about it It so sounds far. like a medlet review waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so CRISPR is also something that we've also noodled with a little bit in the lab that I'm working in. So last year we did a little experiment where we used CRISPR to generate tyrosinase mutants and because we were trying to study something that was along that pathway. And so we were do- we were dealing with knock-ins. So with CRISPR, you can do knockouts, knock-ins, yeah, like yeah. mutations as such. Yeah, and you did the one where you... Because I think the common technique used to be where you would use a, Cris- a CRISPR-Cas9 system, you would cause that double-stranded break, and then you'd fill the cell or um, the area with, like templates and then it would try to copy the template is that what you guys did well 
kind of we basically were just trying to um generate this type of um knock-in just to see if when we ended up growing out like we injected them at the single cell stage and then mm -hmm. once it developed into the full zebrafish we wanted to see how it presented to see if we were doing it right before we we translated it into something that doesn't have such like a visible phenotype mm, okay essentially hmm, cool i love that that's so fun <laughs> All right, so this paper was pretty verbose. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot <laughs> right. going on. And I always kept flipping back and like needing to look at what the acronyms especially were. Right, so definitely. It's very crazy. But it'd be really cool, I think, if we go over the vocab really quickly, just solidify it. So if you end up going and looking mm -hmm. at the paper, if we, if we say anything, you uh, know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the first one that they talk about a lot is DSB or double-stranded breaks. So, uh, Deepa, can you explain what that is? Well, it's exactly how it sounds. So, double-stranded break just means that you have an enzyme that's going to cut through not just one strand, but, like, two strands. So, like, as you know, like, your DNA is, like, double-stranded, so it would be, like, something cutting through both strands of it. Yeah, yeah. And it seems more, like, traumatic than just the single strand. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then the next one was, uh, it's abbreviated NHEJ, or non-homologous N-joining. Um, they talk about this a lot. What does that mean? So essentially, it's a technique to join your ends where you're going to be adding, um, you're going to be doing insertions or deletions at the site of the break to rejoin those ends. So that's mm -hmm. going to give rise to certain insertions or deletions, which can be like mutations that are observed in the organism. Yeah. And so they talk about this one a lot because they usually create that double-stranded break and then those two ends uh, might not be homologous once you like add pieces in, correct? Mm -hmm. And so then you're connecting them again. And so that's the end adjoining part of it. Right. So that's where they talk about that a lot. Mm -hmm. And then something else that I actually didn't know going into this paper, um, it was called an indel. And I was kind of confused, but Deepa was able to uh, let me know all about that. So essentially, when you do this non-homologous adjoining, you can sometimes end up with additional, you because of those insertions or deletions, you end up with um, an extra section of DNA on one strand that's not necessarily, like it doesn't necessarily have a complement on the other strand, which gives rise to these small loops that occur because mm -hmm. um, where if you have like two strands that are complementary, they're just going to be like parallel to each other. Yeah, like just that. on top of each like other. Like just on top of each other. But yeah. if you have this indel, it's like an extra loop without a complement and it's just going to be like a little extra loop that sticks out so these are usually able to be observed if you like ran a gel with this type of edited dna because it'll show up as this this blurry region because you'll have like indels at different locations because your non-homologous ends are not always going to be joined the exact same way yeah yeah right that makes a lot of sense i think okay so the next vocab term is hdr which is homology directed repairs yeah and so like this one was really cool um it makes intuitive sense where if you have um a weird injury in the dna basically if there's cuts or um sometimes even just mutations uh the homologous pairs so when you have both of your chromosomes next to each other in the m phase you have uh two sets of it because we're uh diploid organisms right and so basically what your cells can do is use the correct one of the homologous pair to mirror the other one. Mm -hmm. And so basically you use the correct pair to serve as a template mm -hmm. for the one that you want to fix. 
Um, and your cells do this a lot, especially um, like when they're in the metaphase. They, I think they have to be in the metaphase because they have mm-hmm. to be on top of each other. Right. Um, and then, and they were talking a lot in the paper about how this is pretty common in like embryos and stuff. And it's kind of like more prevalent um, or something like that. And so it's talked a lot about in the paper. Mm-hmm. And then really quickly, transfection is talked about. Basically, they're just inserting a piece of DNA in the form of a plasmid into a cell. It causes the production of a specific protein that you want to express. Mm-hmm. And then germline uh, cells are the haploid cells that we use for um, like mating. We have the two gametes that we'll mm-hmm. meet, and they're germline when they're uh, expressing half their genome uh, so that they can make a zygote later. Right. So in this study, they looked at a gene called MYBPC3, whose mutants can give rise to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So this disease presents with delayed manifestation, which is why it's able to escape the mechanism of natural selection, because it only becomes like prominent in your later years um so essentially what happens is this gene encodes the thick film associated cardiac myosin binding protein so the mutants are going to give rise to heart issues as seen in this disease yeah this disease really breaks my heart (laughs) oh my god (laughs) so they started the experiment by transfecting some of the uh, embryonic stem cells with the plasmid that's going to create the Cas9 within the cell right. and then that Cas9 is supposed to fix the uh, mutant allele and so basically what happened was when they did that they had a really low um, specificity of targeting it says that they got only um, or 72.1 percent were not targeted mm-hmm. and so basically that means that there's issues with the ability for the cells to get targeted and also probably the ability for the uh, cell to transcribe and uh, translate, I guess, the plasmid, just like all of the issues in there. Um, so there's a lot going on there. They did notice some getting fixed, but not a lot. And so, I mean, it's kind of cool, but not really since not many of them are working. Right. So, you know, I mean, it was a cool start. Um, but then later in the paper, they they take what they learned from this, they work with it, yeah. and see where things go. But this was their first step. Mm-hmm. All right, so the next part of the experiment looks at these Cas9 microinjections. So for this part, they used mutant sperm and healthy eggs, fertilized. And then after that, they did CRISPR-Cas9 injections to the embryos. So this meant injecting the guide RNA with a protein. And so this gave rise to mosaic. So essentially the mosaic is an embryo that contained more than one genotype Mm -hmm. so essentially that most likely originated from one of the heterozygous zygotes after fertilization yeah so i they give this really cool diagram i think that explains it really well in the paper but basically it shows that um so when they at first tried the injection of the plasmid it didn't Mm -hmm. really um have that great of targeting efficiency right and so they thought injecting the protein directly would help with efficiency and they do talk about um the fact that it does increase efficiency it went from whatever it was like 20 30 percent to about 72 percent efficiency which Mm -hmm. is like significantly higher that's like that's pretty high um 
But as a result of that, we start seeing these mutants, right? And right. so this diagram shows that, you know, you get that, um, you know you're going to get a Wait. homogenous embryo or, um, yeah, embryo with the injection of the plasmid, but you're going to get less efficiency. And then reverse, you get less of, more efficiency with the injection of the protein, but you start getting these mosaics. Right. So they started forming smaller conclusions as they went through the experiment. So they indicated here that the mutant paternal alleles were predominantly repaired through HDR with decent efficiency. Mm -hmm. And they began formulating this type of hypothesis about potentially human embryos employing different DNA repair mechanisms compared to those of somatic or pluripotent cells. And this may be due to different evolutionary requirements and possibly genome fidelity in the germline. Yeah, I think that's so cool how like at different points in our life, because you know, everybody starts Mm -hmm. as an embryo, like at every point in our life, we have different like like our cells are so dynamic. You that, know, at the that's beginning, so true. at the beginning, they're able to fix things so much differently. And I think later in the paper, it talks about how, and like you said, mm-hmm. evolutionarily, as an embryo, you need to be maybe more plastic and mm-hmm. change more uh, to be able to eventually result into a, right. a being. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I thought that was really really cool. Really cool. So the next section of the paper looks at how to eliminate mosaicism. So in the previous section. We saw that um, some of the findings suggested that CRISPR-Cas9 might have targeted two mutant sperm alleles, and that was interesting because they injected it into a zygote where there's just one sperm, so the scientists were probably confounded about why there was the appearance of two instead of one. So one possible reasoning behind that is that at the time of the injection, a zygote may have completed the S phase of the cell cycle. So... During the S phase, that is when DNA is being replicated. So that gives a plausible reasoning for why they might have seen two copies. So to work around this, they tried to change the stage of the cell cycle where um, they had the Cas9 injection. So instead of doing it in the S phase, they tried doing it in the M phase because um, the S phase comes before the M phase. But if you inject into the M phase, then you're less likely to have further replication. So you're less likely likely to see that extra copy. Right, yeah. And then from that, they resulted a 100% targeting efficiency um, of these M-phase injected um, uh, embryos. And so it was, that's crazy because like right. in science, you never get that. Like yeah. you never get like perfect results like that. So yeah. And just like comparing that with like the 72% or whatever from the right. S-phase is such a significant increase. Yeah, yeah, no, that's crazy. And especially like, you know, when you're getting close to 100%, those margins like, Right. so hard to get and it was cool because they were talking about how the 72 percent yeah that's great but it's not clinically relevant because if you only have a 70 70 percent chance of making a correct embryo for somebody mm-hmm. for implantation later like you, you're not going to do that yeah like what are you going to do with that? right so um this 100 percent um value is amazing and i mean even though you might sometimes get one that doesn't like if mm-hmm. you tried to replicate this experiment like that should yeah. be done um, even if you're getting those 95%, mm-hmm. um, the numbers seem yeah, way more convincing when they're closer to a hundred than like near like near a like, 70. Yeah. Yeah. So it's better numbers and it makes more sense in the clinical sphere now, which is awesome. Um, and so basically they just kind of figured out that changing this phase, 
um, eliminated the uh, mosaicism, it increased the targeting efficiency. Basically, they had refined from the beginning where they had that um, injected plasmid where it didn't have much of a targeting efficiency at all to mm -hmm. this, um, the injected uh, protein itself, right. which increased it a lot. And then they like fixed all the problems with that with mm -hmm. this new um, phase mm -hmm. injection. And so they were just kind of like progressing as they yeah. went along. So by making this small change, they were able to reduce the occurrence of mosaicism, which was the primary issue that they were trying to fix in the first place with this. So mm -hmm. they did a really good combat point and change there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so then like the last quick section that they did was... Um, a off-targeting analysis and basically that's one of the things with CRISPR that everybody is um, looking at because it's kind of scary like yeah since CRISPR is so specific and it's hard to look at an entire genome and know if it's gonna off-target something else so basically mm -hmm. the way it works you know we talked about it finds what the guide RNA is looking for it cuts it and then you either put something in or in this case you use the homologous um, uh, chromosome to serve as a template for it mm -hmm. um, but if you're cutting something that you don't know where it is or what's happening right. you know you could introduce bad things yeah and like while you may see your desired outcome you could have a host of extra problems that may arise right yeah. and it may even be worse than the original condition that you're trying to combat yeah exactly and so basically they did their own analysis of off-target um uh, sequences that could potentially um, have gotten targeted and so they basically found that there's not they, they had a high on targeting specificity with mm -hmm. this Cas9 system and there was no off-target effects that they had found in there they had a pretty decent sample size I think their one that they did for the um, the very last one where they injected the S phase ones mm -hmm. were fit I think it was 58. Um, embryos. So basically, either way, they're using, they're not using like three embryos. They're using tens, fifteens, yeah. twenty, like they're using lots of embryos. And especially since embryos are hard to mm -hmm. maintain and um, get to work, it's, they're using a very large sample size. And though they can always do more, right. they found like no off targeting effects yeah. in all of their, um, of these studies that they were doing. So mm -hmm. um, the fact that they did, their analysis with the digatome sequencing uh, method mm -hmm. was showing that, I mean, even though this technique has that downfall of potentially doing these off-target mm -hmm. effects, they weren't finding it. Yeah, that. I mean, I think it's a really good thing that they did this off-target sequencing analysis just to make sure that while they're presenting what their results are, they're also double checking to see if there are any other significant results that yeah. like maybe off target. Yeah, yeah, they were definitely making sure that what they were doing is mm -hmm. you know safe on the back end as well. So, that was cool. That was also really like good of them to do cuz usually people rip people to shreds about that yeah. and they they just kind of try to yeah. push it under the rug, but they really come yeah. out and identify it. It really establishes their ethos there that they're like we've checked for limitations and yeah, that was... Still pretty confident in our results, definitely. Mm -hmm. Right. So, as you know by now, we always have to wrap up our analyses of these papers with some criticisms. Just a little jab at them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, the first one that, I mean, they mention it themselves, is that 
they were supposed to use homozygous mutants, but they ended up using heterozygous mutants. And I think that's partly just because of the availability of the samples. Mm -hmm. And then also, like, the big mechanism that they used was the homologous uh, repair, and they needed, you know, that other one that wasn't uh, affected. And it's just, like, if you have that uh, homozygous mutant, it's hard to, you know, like, you have to cut the one and then fix both of them you know it's it it's hard to do with that mechanism right and they mentioned here that homozygous samples are just so rare and hard to come across just because of like the severity of the symptoms for people who are experiencing this illness right right um so yeah that's definitely one thing that i mean they like were pretty obvious and pretty clear about it so right and then with the whole off-target section that they did you know, they, they said that they didn't see any off-target, um, off-targeting, uh, you know, functions that were being deleted or added. But, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes they, you can add things and not see them. They could be silent or, you know, they had a big sample size, but, you know, it doesn't mean that some person could gain something that kills them, mm-hmm. you know? And so that'd be pretty devastating. So, yeah. I mean, Though it doesn't happen in what you see, doesn't mean it can't happen. Yeah. Especially in this case. Yeah, and the thing is, like, everyone's going to respond differently, and like, mutations have such, like, a random dynamic nature that, like, right. anything is possible. Right, yeah. So that one uh, is pretty relevant that they kind of still talk about in the paper, but, like, going beyond the paper, we talked a little bit about how this was done on a disease that's caused by, you know, one gene, one right? One gene, uh, but what if there's like a disease that's polygenic where there's multiple genes that are playing into this one phenotype of mm-hmm. disease? And so like, you know, you can't use one CRISPR-Cas9 fitted for one RNA. You would have to use more if you wanted to change yeah, those. But imagine the sheer number of off-target effects that you could yeah. have because of that. Because it's just like this one, but times. Right, yeah. Because like each one you add, you know, you have to think about all their off-targets yeah. and then... And plus, like, more the, and more plus more. like, the interaction between these, like, if you have, like, overlapping sections or whatever, yeah. like, there's a host of issues that can arise from that. Yeah, so, like, it was cool that, you know, you can work on these diseases, and that's awesome, and, you know, we do need something to work on right. these. But, you know, eventually we're going to have to start thinking mm-hmm. about these polygenic diseases, which are numerous because right. we're complex organisms, mm-hmm. that's how things work. Um, so that's just something to think about. This technique will probably not work with polygenic diseases because mm-hmm. there's just so many confounding variables yeah, you have to definitely. add so much going on. Yeah, I mean, I do see that maybe further down the line there might be some type of method to overcome this and and find a way to work with polygenic diseases further down the line. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the last point that we wanted to talk about was ethics, especially whenever you talk about CRISPR, you kind of have to talk about ethics right. because of the gene editing potentials mm-hmm. and, you know, making super babies and everybody mm-hmm. talks about that. So, yeah. I mean, like, especially with, um, legislation is a big deal because, mm-hmm. um, I don't Have you seen Gattaca? The movie? Yeah, the movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like, whenever I think of CRISPR, though, I think it's awesome. I always mm-hmm. think about that movie yeah. because like. You know, what if somebody can't afford this injection that mm-hmm. maybe is someday clinically available? Will we not be able to fix somebody that's poor their heart mm-hmm. and they'll just die? And is that right. like is that ethical to do? Yeah. And yeah, I feel like especially with the having the ability to make these changes, it's just like where is the line? Right. Yeah. So I mean it's it brings this ethical um discussion to the mm-hmm. table that 
is necessary. Like whenever you do a paper on gene editing, I think you need to really take into those uh, those ethical considerations mm-hmm. and maybe put them up up front a little mm-hmm. bit more because I don't think they talked about ethics anymore yeah. in this paper. So yeah, that's something. Yeah, but I mean, I think definitely with any type of like gene editing paper and stuff, like it always gives way for really good discussions about ethics just because there's just so many different facets and it's just so cool. Yeah, so cool. yeah I love that. So um, that was an awesome paper. I loved this one. It was so cool. Nature is, you know, always going to bring us awesome papers. Doing great. <laughs> so, doing great. Yeah. Um, so this was our um, episode for this week, right before our holiday um, holiday season. Right. So um, so think... happy holidays to everyone. Yeah. Um, and as always, please do check out our socials. You can follow us on Instagram at medlitreview. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Feel free to email us. That's uh, to medletreview, T-O, medletreview at gmail.com. Yep. So please feel free to reach out on either of our socials and just continue the discussion. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. Bye.